Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Since we're all doing a lot more thinking and reading these days, we've invited our favorite word mavens, the brother and sister team of Catherine and Ross Petrus, back to our show to talk about language usage and pronunciation. Their most recent book is Awkward, spelled A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Awkward Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. Like there are other books on language, which were That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means and You're Saying It Wrong, it's published by 10 Speed Press. They also have a podcast called You're Saying It Wrong. I'm pleased to welcome Catherine and Ross Petrus back to our show now to help us all sound smarter. Technical problems prevent us from taking your calls today, but you can email any questions you have uh, to me at leonardlopate at wbai.org, and I will um, I'll read some of them on the air. Uh, you can give us a name if, if you don't want me to use the name uh that is on your email. So it's leonardlopate at wbai.org. And I hope to hear from some of you. Hi, Catherine and Ross. Hi, Leonard. How are you today? <laughs> I'm okay. Stuck in my house. I assume you people are as well. Um, yep. I'm going to join the club. <laughs> we're both in our houses, but we're both enjoying ourselves too. One of your recent podcasts focused on words called Fonis Themes. What what's a funnest theme? Is it an actual linguistic category? Well, actually, it's sort of interesting. Funnest themes are a little bit controversial to some degree. The original they're basically um, sounds in the English language that kind of give you a clue that the word means something. Um, for example, GL is a funnest theme, and GL words a lot of times, not all the time, a lot of times kind of refer to things with sight or vision. So but we have not, so we have glimmer, gleam, glitter, glisten, yeah. glow, glint, uh, and um, I guess we could also add glass, glaze, glance, glare. Uh, they all begin with GLA. Um, so, well, you're uh, a is it, Yes, that's exactly is, correct. Is this uh, coincidental that there are so many words at all Reflect giving off light that begin with GL or GLA? Well, that's yes, the Kate. whole point of phonus themes. Um, it, it, obviously, not all words that begin with GL mean, mean have something to do with light. However, many, many do. And this is where the whole debate about what comes first, the, the, the combination. You can have one word, possibly, and it spins off. Like, you can start with glimmer, gleam, everything sounds like it. But... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice, Ross. You're going to have to... Sorry. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, but there, there, there's a huge okay. debate. Okay, I'll tell you. I can drink some water. I'll go on. Um, the big debate is this. In, English, in, in language, you have things called morphemes, which are basically the small... They're like kind of atoms of language, the smallest unit that means something. So then you've got a, something called a phonist theme where there, it's even smaller than a morpheme, and GL doesn't mean anything if you have GL outside of the word, outside of the sound, GL. But for some reason, it did sp does spawn other, other meanings. So the question is, like Kath said, chicken or the egg, or phonus theme, or morpheme. I think pro a lot of times, like there's one word in 
Proto-Indo-European, some very long-spoken language that, you know, the, our ancestors spoke that had a glaw in it, and then a bunch of guys, like, threw in other glaw mm. sounds to mean that. Other times it seems we don't know. It seems almost oddly coincidental in some cases, and words just creep to that way. Or maybe there's some hidden meaning from cave people times. We don't really know. There are well, for words, whatever yeah. reason, and that's... Go ahead. I was going to say, but certain things like ack, the sound ack, it's not... Now, that's at the end of a word, not at the beginning. But you say that, and you think of, like, whacking. You be, like, it's like you crack, whack. It, and so that's almost like onomatopoeia, where the sound becomes... The sound is also the meaning. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of others well, so like it's that. Just, it's just very convoluted, Yeah. There's the ump sound. We get thump, bump, dump, clump, chump, lump, slump, frump, rump. I don't want to get political here, but but they all sound kind of unattractive or awkward. <laughs> oh, I want a, I want a recording of that. <laughs> it's true though, and and you and you feel that, and that's what I think is the interesting thing with phonosemes. Is it ends up whether it's before or after, as we were saying, you end up feeling the meaning bef- without being aware of it. But it, but it happens. I know that yeah, like, sounds very clunky. No, but it is. Oh, that's it's, another it's, one. Unk. Unk. Yes. Unk, we have unk. clunk. I like the SN one. Snort, snuff, sniffle. All the SN sounds for for nose. Sneeze, snout, snore. St- what else did we say? Uh, but it's interesting because you would have thought that you would have had the N and the S from nasal and nose. But you, but these just mm-hmm. snuh. Do you think it's because when, when people have stuffed noses, they, they kind of talk like that? It's a That's good guess. an interesting concept. It could be. Wasn't there something else? Remember with sneeze, sneeze initially with sneeze or something? Sneeze, and then in Chaucer's time, it changed to uh, sneeze. They changed it. What was it originally? It was sneeze, I think, in Chaucerian English. It's not, or or prior, before Chaucer, I think it was called, it was sneeze. Can you check that, Kath? Uh, I don't have my... I am, I think that's what it was. Yeah. And and then we have... Yeah, because it came from, it came from the old, old English, it started with an F. Yeah, sneeze. Uh, sneeze. Which sounds awkward. Sneezed. Hmm. There's like SL sounds as well, and they all, uh, uh, well, they evoke a different sense. Uh, slither, slime, slinky, sleazy, slippery. Um, I guess that's because the SL uh, is a kind of a sibilant sound, so slur, slur. Well, I don't know how the slur works there. But uh, mm-hmm. that's another interesting group. Yeah, no, it's really and, and interestingly enough, SL words tend to be negative. I mean, that's uh-huh. the other thing that's interesting with with these with these things called phonosemes is so, for whatever reason SLs, like you said, they're slithery, they're snaky, which is SN actually, but um, they tend to be more pejorative. The slurs, a sleazy, um, slick, slimy. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is, is you start thinking of words and you can't go on and on forever. But it's also we, interesting. Because it's, go ahead. It's also interesting because we don't really know why this has happened. We we can uh, deduce it, but the 
basic theories of linguistics have always been that sounds just exist and, you know, like we call an apple an apple, someone else calls it something else, and that's just it. But these words, th these GLs, SNs, and all that stick together. And some very uh, statistically minded person once did a th uh, study of words, and they found that 38.7, we're being very exact here, GL words in English um, refer to lighter vision. And then SN words, 28.4% referred to uh, nose. But the reverse was also the case. Only 1 or 4% the opposite way occurred. So this is not mm -hmm. just like coincidence. This does happen in the language. We have no idea really why. But we just I'm curious, know I'm curious about the U. We mentioned the ump sounds. But then there's the unk sounds. Clunk, chunk, thunk, mm -hmm. dunk, funk, flunk, plunk, skunk. Um, kind of ugly words. And then there's erp. Uh, burp and slurp. So yep. they all have a U in them, and, and the word ugly begins with U. Again, just a coincidence? They think that one of the reasons they think that one is the uh sound is very, it's very negative usually, and it's formed in the back of your mouth. Uh, and they think there's just some thought that the uh formed in the back of your mouth is always negative in English. I don't know why. This is interesting. We've got now, we've, we've walked into something that's called um, phonoesthetics, which is, hmm. which is the study of beauty and pleasantness associated with sounds of words or parts of words. So this is a, a, it's another related area. And it's true, as Ross said, the uh tends to be unpleasant. As, same thing with the k at the end of a word. I, it, like, you think of the words you just said, like funk. Skunk. It's it's not it's not pleasing. And the F word. I mean, to be to be blunt, ends with C K. That's another mm -hmm. unpleasant sounding word. And they've done studies, and without you can do words without any meaning, and people respond to the sounds. Oddly enough. On the other hand, uh, we have clunk versus clank or clink. We have thunk versus thank or think. Um, thank or think are not considered unpleasant words. No, and that's the They're whole not. point of this. Though. Although the we throw somebody is, in the clink. We throw them in the clink. But the key thing is it's, it's sort of like it's fuzzy. Like anything in language, it's always very fuzzy. It tends to be like mostly negative, not always negative. And so, also, interestingly, a lot of times guys' nicknames end in things like K's, kit or T's. Or, and that's, that's actually seen as technically not pleasant sounding but tough sounding so in a way it's good and bad <laughs> some examples well um well kit carson uh hunk mm. used to be mm. a very common nickname in uh new england um dak dick why am i thinking of tab hunters <laughs> the only nickname that came to my mind was tab <laughs> i think he's the only one i ever knew named that <laughs> They were doing a lot of nicknames or te uh, for, ma for women, nicknames tend to be very pleasant sounding. A lot of male nicknames tend to be very kind of technically not pretty sounding or good sounding, but they think it's sort of for a toughness or something like that, actually. Uh, a reminder to, to our listeners, if you have a question for Kathy and Ross uh, or, your, uh, or about your own choice of the most, well, uh, if you have some words that you're interested in talking about, you can email me at Leonard Lopate, that's 
all lowercase, Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org, and I'll ask your questions for you. So you were talking about pleasant-sounding words. To my ear, German and Russian often sound kind of harsh, while French and Portuguese sound soothing. Is that because German uses more hard consonants and the Romance languages tend to use softer sound? I think for, for, for English speakers, yes, I think that's, that's the reason. I mean, you could argue that, um, I mean, obviously in German, Germans have words that they think are beautiful that to our ear might not sound beautiful. It's very much uh, a function in many cases of your own native tongue. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think people do have that, like they like the, the, the soothing sort of flowy sort of words. The fascinating thing to me is the most, this, this is like, this is just, always has gotten me. Cellar door is a, is mm-hmm. a cellar door. That is considered by J.R. Tolkien, who was um, you know a philologist, to be the most beautiful sound in the English language. Cellar door. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Parker agreed. Uh, Mencken agreed. George R. R. Martin, current guy, agreed. And it just and but the, and again, it's just because of the sound. I mean, because a cellar door is just a cellar door. Why not celery root? Well, anyway, that, another word that some people have chosen. <laughs> Is gonorrhea. Now, I can't, I mean, I guess it's a nice sounding word, but it uh, does not bring pleasant thoughts to mind. <laughs> exactly, no. <laughs> they so, actually did a show on the best sounding English words in terms of like what letters to make a really good sounding word in English, what letters do people use to make up a word like that? And it was interesting because L, M, S, N, and R were the top words of the top letters in English to use for words. And cellar door has basically mm. an S sound and an L sound in it. Mm-hmm. And gonorrhea? Gonorrhea is not a pleasant sounding word. <laughs> gonorrhea is an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have read that many times along with the cellar door thing, but okay. Uh, we should uh, remind our listeners that they're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and my guests are two of our favorite regulars Catherine and Ross Petrus uh, authors of a number of books the most recent being Awkward Moments A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know that you also have a podcast called You're Saying It Wrong uh, in talking about the, this topic that we are discussing today have you gotten much feedback from your listeners or your readers? In terms of the words, yes. And in most of the case, most of the time it does, they do kind of follow the LMNSR kind of routine. We have not had any real basic surprises, although occasionally people will pick a word like peace or love or whatever that has like a connotation, not of the sound, but of the meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. Well, that is part of it, though. I mean, I, you, it's difficult to separate. I mean, we go back to gonorrhea. I mean, it's awfully difficult to think of gonorrhea just as like, oh, lovely. You know, it is. I, I Why not syphilis, for that but, matter? Uh, syphilis, yeah, is syphilis I think, is actually much more, more euphonious than gonorrhea. Because yeah. syphilis, at least, like sort of syphilis. <laughs> yeah, it is. Syphilis. I like syphilis as a word, not as a kind <laughs> as a of word. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified right. that. Clarify. <laughs> well, they do say that a lot of times the words that people like the most in terms of a sound are the easiest ones to say. They just say, like you were saying that, Leonard, they just sort of flow off the tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
gonorrhea to me does not flow off the tongue. No. Syphilis no, does. I think that sounds awful how I'm saying You know what I mean? But we're not going to go through all of the other the the, the other illnesses that are unpleasant. Uh, I've often wondered why English has some combinations of letters that are pronounced very differently in different words, like the combination O-U-G-H that's found in words like though, through, enough, cough, and then uh, you can add a T and you get thought and drought. In uh, in in though or do, it sounds like an O. In tough or enough, it's an uff. In cough, it's off. In through, it's oo. In thought, it's aw. And drought, it's ow. Six very different sounds for the exact same thing. Are their roots all in German? Is that just my guess? Well, it's it's early it's early English, yeah, and that and that guess is correct. That sound used to be kind of a huh, a huh sound, mm-hmm. sort of. I guess probably something like modern Dutch has it right now, but a huh sound. Yeah, and it basically, a, uh, as English changed, it, it lost those sounds, but the spelling stayed there. They couldn't figure out how to put that sound into English letters. They put gh, but then mm-hmm. gradually people lost that sound, and it um, either became a, a huh, a silent. Or an F, usually. And now yeah, we, use, we use the H to, to, to make that. If you're writing certain Hebrew or Yiddish words that's, that have, start with ch, you, you just make it chala, it becomes, or C-H or H-A-L-L-A-H. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you're, you're supposed to know. You're supposed to know. Because actually, we've been in the Midwest, and I've heard people say chala. I've actually have uh, heard that. Chanaka, <laughs> Now, on the other hand, <laughs> now, on the other hand, when Russians do it, they want that ch sound. They write it K H, so you have Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And I was thinking that, any, but in Greek, you have chai, which yeah. is uh, spelled. Yeah, so it, 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 sound, it's difficult to transliterate sounds, you realize. I, I mean, and do the different languages do handle it differently? And it is just a question then of knowing. It's almost like you, you, you learned that that means that. Exactly. In English, we had the G-H, which, you know, began to lose the sound in many cases. Why it lost the sound, that's how languages evolve. Sometimes people keep sounds, sometimes they lose sounds. But at, at that point, it became fossilized because it was already written down and printed, so people kept the the, uh, the letters, but they lost the sound in many cases, or changed well, them. Uh, we, we mentioned O-U-G-H words. What about A-U-G-H words? Also pronounced differently. Caught and taught, but laugh, daughter, laughter. Yep. Daughter, daughter and this laughter. That's why people go rhyme. nuts learning English. <laughs> but daughter and laughter used to rhyme in older English. It was doctor and laughter. Laughter. They were both rhyming, and then they... Daughter lost the GH and laughter kept the, the uh, F sound, which is weird. The thing with that, I was guessing, because it's true when you say poetry, because poetry a lot of times you read now and you think, like, why would they have done that? Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that it did indeed rhyme. It wasn't just a case of a poet having a leaden ear, if an ear now, could be uh, leaden. I've invited listeners to write in to Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org with uh, their thoughts about these things. And uh, John, I'm not going to give his last name, uh, he says that chlamydia sounds prettier than gonorrhea. <laughs> chlamydia actually does have like a sort of, yeah. it's, it reminds me of chrysanthemum, so I think flower for some reason, <laughs> even though I know it's not. 
There's a whole section here of, of, of words I realize of that are negative beautiful. words that sound pretty. Another really? There's an illustrated <laughs> book in that. <laughs> Another combination is OW, which can be pronounced O as in slow, low, mo, toe, no, or ow as in how now, brown cow. Mm-hmm. And then you have it's, certain words. The one I've got. Go ahead. Oh, go on. I was just going to say, and then oh, there were certain to go words. Back like, for one second to O U G H, and the one that okay. always threw me as a kid was when you see hiccup spelled H uh-huh. I C C O U G H. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I that, guess it was because it has the word cough in it. Pronounced. Uh, it's 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 not that O U G H really there is spelled up. It's 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 really more that they people started spelling it with O U G H because it seemed similar to a cough. So they mm-hmm. just wanted to make it fit even though the pronunciation had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Well, we read hiccup both ways, H-I-C-C-U-P or hiccough. And it's, and we just automatically know to pronounce it hiccup. I, I, as you said earlier, that's what makes English so difficult. There, there are plenty of people uh, who come here who are totally confused by this sort of stuff. I'd imagine that they're confused by uh, words like B-O-W and R-O-W, which can be pronounce either bow or bow or row or row. And they have very t- totally different meanings. Yeah, those are called, uh, those are called homonyms. Words uh-huh. that are spelled the same, but they have different meanings. And then that's, and bow and bow obviously are very different, yes. Actually, that's a homino or a homophone. I always get confused, oh, homophone. Homophones but have different spelling. I always do that. Homophone are words that sound alike but have a different. They uh, have a different meaning. Exactly. And then there are homonyms and there are heteronyms and and homographs. I don't hate those. Correct. I, 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 I quit that. on all of those. I like <laughs> things that are complicated. <laughs> but the ones homographs are spelled the same, and that's the one that I can imagine, like close and close. Lean, uh-huh. well, lean and lean, but then you've got bow and bow, bow, you bow, you you bow, and then it's also the front of a ship. Skipping. Tear and tear. That's a heteronym. That's a heteronym. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you have, you have tear, you tear paper and you have a tear coming out of your eye. Yes. Right. That, this is a complicated, is there any other language like that? To um, this degree, no. I don't think so. I think it's partly English because is, English, English has been so, has just taken words from every language possible in ways that uh, you don't see elsewhere. We, we take words from Hindi. We take words from African languages. We take words from you know, Arabic, from French, from German, from the Dutch. Etc. Swedes. Yeah, so, it, it's a very it's a very hodgepodge of a language. There was some saying about that. Do you remember? I forget now. It was it was a famous person said something to that effect. And it is just one of those. Again, we go back to how difficult it is to learn because there is no. It, it's very it's very heterogeneous, and it's the sources as you just said are from all over. I mean, you start out just with English, with Saxon and Norman. I mean, just even from that, you have like that split with spelling. Some are spelled the French way. Some are spelled the, the old mm-hmm. English way, and so on and so forth, and it and it and it grew from that. 
that. So um, it's it's a it's a nightmare. It's a rat's nest of a language, I would argue. Uh, and apropos of this, we got uh, an email from Elaine who says, I teach English as a second language to adults. This idea that certain sounds and words relate to particular topics seems like it could be helpful to my students, especially when they're in a situation in which they would need to guess at the meaning of the words, like in on a reading comprehension test. Yes, odd words drive the students crazy. Uh, and then she asked me to re- she asked me to repeat the na- your names and your books, um, which I'm very. <laughs> I guess she wants to buy one, and I don't blame her. Uh, the most recent book from Kathy. I like Elaine. And, <laughs> <laughs> the most recent book from Kathy and it's Ross true. Petras. It's a, it's an... You want to tell us the name of your book and 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 the pun in the title? The most recent one is Awkward W O R D Moments, um, and it's what's the subtitle? A lively guide to the hundred terms smart people should know. And I would add, but often don't. Press. And yeah. I'm among them. <laughs> you have problems with those words. Um, a lot of the books Ross and I do are, are based on our own situation. So I've got to say, it's it's a lot of what we've done, and we've we've gone into what we've had problems with, and try to build on that. There, there are there are words that uh, look the same but sound different, like uh, read present tense, and red, past tense. And then there's the plant, read, and the color, red, which are pronounced like the verbs, but spelled differently. So, And then there are some other examples, like two, T-O-O, also the number two, T-W-O, and two as in to go. Um, how, do we, how do we wind up with this situation? Again, what Kathy said it's the complex mixture of all different languages coming in. Other languages do have them, though. I'm trying to think back on Greek and Arabic and Latin and Hebrew and stuff. And there are some... I would argue, are, though, that English has it more. But I just looked at this for bow, B-O-W. I counted bow, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different bows along... Um, a long stick used to play with the violin, bending forward, bow, bow the ship, mm-hmm. bow the ribbon, uh, bow-legged is, you know, bow-legged person, bow a district in London, and bow used to project to uh, launch projectiles as in bow and arrow. Some of them with slightly different pronunciations, actually. But well, then you I mean, get, you know, I'm happens. sure people get confused when they say, her, I'd like you to meet Mary and her bow, John. Very good. Yes. Well, it's not beautiful. (laughs) And that's B-E-A-U. Right. But then you also have the the, those silent the silent letters that pop into words that like salmon. No one says salmon. Uh, Island. You don't say Iceland. Iceland. Scissors. You don't say skizzer. Which comes from, again, Old English, though, that skizzer part, because it used to be the SC would have been pronounced a long time ago, and then we lost it. Would have been a sk or sh? Um, it could have been, it could actually depends on what part of um, England you were. If it would have been, the, it would have been in the Danish part, it would have been sk, and then the southern part, they would have pronounced it sh, which is even, which is even more complicated with English. But that's right, Leonard. He did catch the S. SC, SC being a shut sound, too, in English, in Old English. Now, 
Now, the, the, going back to the homophones, uh, uh, we have words that uh, sound the same that have totally different meanings, like roll, uh, a type of bread, and the verb roll, to roll something. Uh, they, uh, then we have roll, R-O-L-E, and a play, which has a different spelling. And I was thinking along roll lines, well, we have bread and bread. Mm-hmm. I'm going crazy. <laughs> I know. That's <laughs> what we do every day, go mad. We just, we thing, just. We haven't even touched on contractions like you are, your, and your, which is my pet peeve in the world. Yes. And how most people don't seem to realize that they're three different things spelled differently. Yes. And then the word it's, which is, uh, gets, always gets an apostrophe in the wrong place or the wrong yes. time. Of course. <laughs> People think that because the apostrophe is generally used in possessives, that it's, when it's a possessive, should have an apostrophe when it doesn't. It only has the apostrophe when it, it's a contraction of it is. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, with that in mind, let me alert my audience again to the fact that this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York. Tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we ever part, then that might break my heart. So if you like pajamas, I like pajamas. I'll wear pajamas, give up pajamas. Before we get back to our discussion about language with Catherine and Ross Petrus, I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI at this most difficult of times. We need all of our loyal listeners to step up right now, go to the website, give to WBAI.org, that's give and the number two, WBAI.org, or to call 516 620 3602 to help keep this show and this station strong and on the air. Again, the number 516-620-3602, the website give to WBAI.org. And a particularly great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also to spread out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station or what we call a BAI buddy. Uh, it's uh, it's the way that listeners like Anita Brown of Brooklyn Heights and James LaSala of Riverdale, New Jersey are showing their support for Leonard Lopate at large. And a big thanks to you both and to all the other listeners who have made contributions throughout this drive. And joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to talk about a special offer for listeners who sign up to become BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during this drive. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. How are you? 
I'm okay. I'm having a lot of fun today. I, I'm having a lot of fun listening to it, as I'm sure our listeners are at home. You know, uh, we have, we could very easily have a different guest every day of Leonard Lopate at large. But one of the things that Leonard and I both value and, and feel, uh, get a lot of po- positive feedback about are our regular guests like Catherine and Ross Petrus. Uh, tomorrow we have another regular contributor, Bob Henley, coming back to talk about the government response to COVID-19. So uh, the U-Bells. The Ubells, uh, Josh Wesson on mm-hmm. wine, uh, My- Michael Patrick McDonald on the situation in Ireland and the UK. Like I said, you know, believe me, there's no <laughs> shortage of people who want to come on the show. We could we could fill it if we wanted to, but we've found, and I know that I- if you're listening, you've probably noticed that by having the same guests back every couple of months. Um, who we don't, we can go a little beyond the, the issues on the table, beyond their most recent book or film or article. And as we're doing today, uh, you know, the last time the Petruses were here, we talked about their book, Awkward Moments, or should I say you talked about their book, Awkward Moments, uh, and they did. And this time we can expand on some of what's in the book, but also get into some listener questions as we always do, but, but expand on some other interesting topics. So if this is the kind of thing that you're enjoying at home and you're able to, we know that for a lot of people, this is a very financially trying and uncertain time, uh, and we would never want to complicate anything for any of our listeners. But because we are a 100% listener-sponsored radio station, we don't have a backup plan. Uh, We don't have corporate underwriting. There's no matching dollars. So uh, if our listeners like you don't step up, there is no WBAI and therefore no more Leonard Lopate at large. We don't run ads the way many public broadcasters do. You watch Channel 13, a great TV station, uh, there are regular ads for various, well, various products and services. Uh, we don't do that. We have, since our beginnings, 60 years ago, we have totally relied on our listeners because I think it, it gives us a kind of independence that you can't get any other way. But it also puts it, us at a bit of a disadvantage. We have to get calls from our listeners. We have to have you come through for us. And in case uh, you haven't, And as a way of saying thank you for coming through, Leonard and I uh, are offering, or should I say Leonard has has very uh, generously offered his time uh, for the second of two My Dinner with Leonard events. The Uh, first one already sold out. Right, we sold out on the first one, but we've we Leonard has agreed to do another teleconference. This is uh, for for you and nine other listeners to have a uh, personal teleconference with Leonard. You can ask him anything you'd like. Uh, you can tell him anything you'd like about the role that the show has played nice. in your own day. Uh, <laughs> right, right. He he does have feelings, as all of us <laughs> in the broadcast world do. Believe it or not. Um, but the only way to to attend that event is by being uh, becoming rather a sustaining member of WBAI, what we call a BAI buddy. Leonard mentioned it before. These are people who make a contribution of ten dollars or, or more a month in the name of Leonard Lopate at large 
to WBAI. Uh, so if you step up and do that right now, you can attend this dinner. Uh, but any level that you're able to contribute at is so desperately needed and appreciated right now. <clears throat> I'm going to give out the number again. It is 516-620-3602 or give to WBAI.org on the web. And of course, be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank all of you who do that. And I look forward to meeting as many people as possible. I'm all excited that the first one has already been sold out. And uh, let's see if we can do a second one. Jesse, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, give, Leonard. Give the phone number one more time. What the heck? Yes, it's 516-620-3602. Again, 516-620-3602. Or you can go to the web, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two WBAI.org. If you sign up to become a BAI buddy, that's someone who makes a sustaining monthly contribution of $10 or more to the station. 15, 20, whatever. Whatever you're comfortable doing, uh, you are uh, eligible. Well, should I say you have the option, should you want to attend uh, a teleconference called, we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. Everyone who becomes a BAI buddy is eligible to it is is invited to attend, but you don't have to. It's not obviously. We only want this to be for for the fans who really want to talk to Leonard and get a little uh, a little FaceTime with him, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, and so uh, uh, again, and and I'll let you get back to this interview. The number is five one six six two zero three six zero two or give to WBAI.org. And again, from all of us at the show and the station, thank you so much. And now let's get back to our guests, Kathy and Rose Petrus, whose uh, three books are, uh, That Doesn't Mean What You Think It Means, You're Saying It Wrong, and most recently, Awkward Moments, W-O-R-D, Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People should know. They're all published by 10 Speed Press. They also have a, a podcast called You're Saying It Wrong. And we've been inviting our listeners to join in to this conversation since, uh, unfortunately, the pandemic has created all sorts of technical problems for us. Uh, we can't right now take listener calls, but we've been inviting people to write in to my email address. Um, that's uh, Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. And Barbara wrote this. I think about how so many women's names end in the letter A, Pamela, Priscilla, Patricia, Donna, Lisa, Eliza, Diana, Christina, uh, can't, uh, well, her, her name is Barbara, can't think of men's names that end in an A. Uh, is that because they sound more feminine? Uh, and is this uh, more common in old-fashioned names like Henrietta? And is the uh, is it changing at all because now people want their daughters to grow up strong? So we're seeing names like Courtney and Whitney and Tracy. Uh, what do you think? Two things. First of all, it's interesting what she, what she is saying is actually correct. Women's names in English do tend to do tend more often than not to end in a than they do than man's names. Although they're in Latin, for example, 
Catiline, the uh, Catalina, his name would be, so it could end in A. But traditionally, in Indo-European languages, the A is a feminine ending. But the E is also sort of a feminine ending as well. It tends to be more female than male. So in both cases, I don't think the E ending or the Y ending is strengthening anything. I think it still tends to be kind of a softer sound, and I think therefore more feminine. Kathy, do you have any... Uh, and I was going to add to it, a lot of times also um, there was a tendency for female names to be formed from a male name. Like you would have your father, mm. a woman would have, the, a girl would get her father's name and you'd add the A or a, a, the a uh sort of sound to feminize it. Because it was mm. just a way of, if that, was, that was a way to mark it. And as Ross said, the real, main thing though is just, is just the source in Proto-Indo-European, just the fact that um, a is a we, that's where the names derive from. Oh, did I say, what did I say? No, you said it. Oh, I thought I said I thought I said something wrong. I thought, oh no, <laughs> you know how it is when you're just talking and it's like whoop, wrong thing. But um, I think though you're right though that there is a, there is a tendency now to move away from that A sound, or for that matter the E. Like I'm Kathy. I mean, my name is Catherine, but I'm called Kathy. And I think you're getting you used to have a lot of the nicknames mm-hmm. for girls where the I E I or Y. Yeah, but you um, have men too. You have men. Yeah, like Mickey. People call Mickey. me Lenny, even though um, Lenny. You know, yeah. the people who know me well case, don't. But that's a whole other thing. We want to call you Lenny, Leonard. <laughs> no, 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 please don't. No, but but that's, that's, you know, actually, though, in English, tends to be like a, a diminutive. It's a small, it's a familiar, and it mm. kind of makes you smaller. We, you know, the E sound means small or familiar. So when you say to call someone Lenny, it's showing that you're familiar. He's not as powerful to you as <laughs> Leonard would be. In uh, that sense. Maybe that's why I, mean, I prefer Leonard. I want the power. <laughs> <laughs> so that would correlate, Ross, to like E-T-T-E, right, in French. Like when uh, you add like the et to, 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 to minimize, to make it cutie, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's a diminutive. It makes, makes it mm-hmm. smaller. And, it, and there's a perfect example because you have Georges, the father's name, and then you have Georgette, the daughter's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are many others like that. Just watching an old Dick Van Dyke show, you have the A ending, and uh, Dick Van Dyke's grandfather wants the, uh, or father, I guess, in the show, wants the, the girl, he wants it to be Robert if it's a boy, and Roberta, Roberta if it's mm-hmm. a girl. Again, the A yeah. ending throwing on to the uh, idea of, of it, like Kat said, tagging on a, le- a letter to make the thing feminine. And then sometimes you tag on another letter, for example, Francois or Francoise. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm stuck in France, but we do the same thing in England. English, I don't know whether it's done in other languages, in German or, or Dutch or Swedish or whatever, Swahili. Uh, but I, I suspect similar things happen in every language. No. Oh, yeah. Earlier, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, definitely. Because, I mean, Latin does it. Latin has ula, you know, uh, navicula, littler, littler ship. The ula becomes, uh, or puella, puella becomes puellula. Uh, again, it's making it smaller and littler. ULA in Latin makes a, a woman's name smaller. It does that. They all, all languages tend to do that sort of thing. Or most languages. I don't speak any. Number, I don't speak thousands of languages, I guess, but most do. <laughs> well, ask the president. He knows how many countries there are in the world. I think he, the last count he said there were 187. <laughs> but 
would, that would be a lot of languages to learn. I, I suspect there are even more countries than that, but that and many more languages. Uh, you you're mentioning Latin, and on another podcast, you talk about Latin words that have come into the English language, and some of them, like status quo and ad hoc, are used in everyday speech, but others like sub rosa and sui generis or generis, I'm never sure which, are considered kind of hoity-toity. Do do people Mm -hmm. tend to use them correctly or incorrectly because they only have a vague idea of what they might mean? I would argue that they're often used incorrectly um, because of just what you said. And I, I think that there's an unfortunate tendency for people to try to sound smart and, and by doing so, sounding not quite as smart as they probably really are deep down. And I'm, I, Ross is the Latin expert in our duo. I am not. And I must say, in doing our book, in awkward moments, we include a lot of those Latin words. And they are ones that always stumped me. I would say most of them stumped me. But the fun thing about it, like Sub Rosa comes to mind, that one I always did know what it meant, which is, which is you know, um, uh, undercover. But I mm. love the genesis of the term, because I never knew that. I mean, it, I never thought about what it meant, you know, but Sub Rosa is under the roses. And it's oh. like, why would that mean undercover? Somebody hiding under the roses? That's a rather thorny well, proposition. I- yeah, actually, the idea was that uh, it goes back to mythological times, and uh, Venus or Aphrodite's who um, had the symbol of the rose, and the rose, and her son didn't want her indiscretions to become known, so the rose became famous as a symbol of being quiet, and then the Romans would put a rose in their dining area to symbolize the fact that no one is going to tell any secret any secrets that are said here are not going to go out to the the wide world it was kind of like the ancient roman what happens in vegas stays in vegas i think to make it colloquial (laughs) really (laughs) but we've changed a lot of those things i had i had a greek friend who used to correct me she'd say it's aphrodite it's zeus not zeus she would get very upset (laughs) by the but, but English there, pronunciation. Actually, though, speaking, we're both in Greek and background. That's and we grew up with Greek. That's the modern pronunciation of, of Zeus and uh, Aphrodite. And in ancient, there's a huge debate going. Greeks hate the uh, what's called the reconstructed ancient Greek pronunciation because it sounds very little like modern Greek. Because the U in modern Greek is an F sound, but in, yeah. apparently the ancient Greeks used an U sound for it. And I had an aunt who would just go crazy with the theoretical way people really should have spoken Greek then. Hated it. Getting back to... Go ahead. uh, What? Which aunt? I'm sorry, Leonard. I was just curious. Which of our aunts would go crazy? Aunt Helen. There's like a. Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah, because she said... Sorry, there's a little family moment there. (laughs) Lloyd, now, she said she get, pronounced Poyi remember? It's a big thing about that. Whatever. Get, yes, I do remember. You, you talk about those but Latin words. In, yeah, well, getting back to Latin words, some of them that you deal with in your book, Awkward Moments, there's de facto versus de jure. Now, what's the difference there? Uh, I guess more people would say de facto than de jure. Um, that one, it's that's funny, one that I, I, I actually did the, not... Oh, sorry, go on. Go ahead, Ross. No, you go ahead. I used to be in the Foreign Service, and de facto and de jure were, like, commonly used. De facto means in fact. But for example, a, a government in fact, a de facto mm-hmm. government, a de jure government would mean a legal government. 
so de facto it might be there's been a coup and the, the government that's in, in place right now is the de facto government. Precisely. Until, For example, right until now something is resolved. The U.S. The US views Maduro, uh, Maduro as a uh, de facto leader. They don't recognize him as a de jure leader. They say that he's illegally the president of Venezuela. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. That's what they view it as. And that's a really, I think those are both really useful words if you're dealing with another government. I'm not sure they're that useful to use in everyday conversation. Well, something that we do use in everyday speech, Latin, uh, and that it works perfectly well is mea culpa. I love mea culpa. I, I think it's, it's a different, great phrase. It's different than excuse me or I'm sorry. It's a lot more powerful, isn't it? Well, it's, Absolutely. I, I think it's, my... it's got that. I'm sorry. Go on, Kath. No, go ahead, Ross. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Was it this way when you were kids? We're sitting here like... We did. <laughs> well, we're both talkers, if you hadn't noticed. So it was very active. We'd be cutting each other off like right and left, and then we'd both stop abruptly, as we're doing now. Dinner yes, must have been fun. Culpa. It's a, it was it was very loud, our dinner. Ross, when he first got married, his wife was Swedish in background, and she was sort of appalled at our very <laughs> Greek kind of dinner table conversation, which meant everybody talked all at once loudly. That was pretty much it. <laughs> anyway, back to mea, mea culpa, why you think it's good. Uh, and do you think that sine qua non uh, is also uh, acceptable, or does that remain in the elitist camp? Sine qua non, I think, is elitist, I think. Hmm. Because there are so many English words. Mea culpa means my fault through my fault. And it used to be used in, I mean, it's used in in Latin, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa for confessions. Hmm. But I think it's it's kind of gone into the general usage, and I think it's really good. I like it. My serious fault. I think it's overused. I think it's actually overused now because the point to me of mea culpa, you use it when it is something big. And I think now mea culpa are just sort of sprinkled around like croutons in a salad and, huh. and they're not really as important. They're being used in places where they oughtn't be. I think that mea culpa should be reserved for, for a real admission of culpability. I don't think well, it should just be sort of like... Although it's sometimes used sort of snottily, like they made their mea culpas and went on or something like that. On the other hand, I suspect that there's a religious connection. Obviously, mea culpa is something that comes up in uh, Catholic liturgy. Uh, A number of these words do, for obvious reasons. So uh, even though the Pope is no longer an Italian, or and the last one was German, they would have known all these Latin words. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, but uh, some sine qua non, I think, is a bit of a push, though. I'd agree with Rosie on that. Sine qua non, I don't think we need. But now we have quid pro I'm quo, which I think everybody uh, probably was a bit obscure for a while, and now everybody knows quid pro quo. T- too much. <laughs> I think that was one I think we all got really <laughs> sick of. <laughs> but yes, that's another one, though. I think quid pro quo is legal, even though I'm tired of it. I think that one, I think, says what it means pithily. So I would argue uh, that that's acceptable. Although now I'm tired of it, so don't use it. Are you working? We're pretty much out of time. Are you working on another book? Um, we're actually working on two books. So <laughs> another word book, 
and then like a, another po- a popular history book as well. Oh, well, maybe we'll have you We're back to that back, as well. Leonard. <laughs> but meanwhile, the book, the most current book from Ross and Catherine Petrus is Awkward, A-W-K-W-O-R-D, Awkward Moments, A Lively Guide to the 100 Terms Smart People Should Know, published by 10 Speed Press, as well as, and so are there other books on language, that doesn't mean what you think it means, and you're saying it wrong, and you can always find their podcasts called You're Saying It Wrong, available on YouTube, I assume? Um, it's on it's on it's on Google Play. It's on Apple Podcasts. Um, you you can just look it up online and you'll find it. Okay, well, it's always a pleasure, and I look forward to speaking to you. And I guess it'll be a couple of months. Meanwhile, okay, great, great. And 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 I'm almost I'm assuming the language is going to go through many changes during this election period. I certainly think so. <laughs> We're braced. <laughs> <laughs> And we're recording it all, so. <laughs> okay, well, that. thanks again. That brings us to the end of today's show. And my special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who prepared this segment. If you're discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And uh, don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter as well. And uh, if you'd like to send me a comment about this or any of our past shows, the same email address I was giving out during that show is, is uh, applies. It's LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, the pandemic has put WBAI in a very difficult spot. In fact, pretty much all public broadcasters, but uh, we especially because we rely totally on listener support, and some people uh, have cut back on their support because they just can't afford it. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep 100% listener-supported radio for the 99% alive throughout the New York metropolitan area. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow when one of our regular contributors, Bob Henley, will discuss the multitude of issues facing state and local governments as this country moves toward reopening during this pandemic. We'll see you then. <laughs>